So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at butcherbox.com slash conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. Do you want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on. Of course you do. The average podcast listener has six shows in rotation. So you're most likely not just listening to Conspirituality. And that's totally okay. I'd love to share a podcast to add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a top-shelf podcast named Best of Apple in 2018. So don't just ignore my suggestion to listen to this one like you probably do with your other friends who tell you to listen to podcasts. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes to scientists, political activists, mobsters, even hostage negotiators. And Harbinger has an undeniable talent for getting his guests to share never-before-heard stories and thought-provoking insights. Without fail, he pulls out tactical bits of wisdom in each episode, all with the noble cause to make you more informed a critical thinker, and to better operate in today's world. I was on his show. In preparation, I listened to a bunch of episodes. He's just really good at what he does. Like episode 880 features Ian Bremmer, you know, the top-notch political scientist, and the topic is dealing with the world in disarray. But then you have episodes like his skeptical Sunday format. Episode 882 looked at homeopathy, but he has other episodes on Ayurveda and also the popular pseudoscience of analyzing body language. There isn't a better podcast to listen to casually or seriously to expand your worldview. He's also got a strangely relatable weekly segment called Feedback Friday, where Jordan covers advice on everything from escaping a cult or a psycho family situation to relationships and networking and even to asking for a raise. So point blank, Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, he's easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and even actionable advice that you can directly use to improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conspirituality, where we investigate the intersection of conspiracy theories and spiritual influence to uncover cults, pseudoscience, and authoritarian extremism. And for this brief, I should add how sometimes we're not so sure what basic terms like faith mean, and that that might be a good thing. Today, I'm joined by a friend of the pod, Bradley Onishi, who teaches religious studies at the University of San Francisco. He's the co-host of the excellent Straight White American Jesus podcast and the author of Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism. Now, we hosted Brad for episode 167 to walk through his fantastic book and his journey out of evangelicalism. And I'm pleased to welcome him back for a little less analysis of religious extremism and a little more reflection on religious and spiritual experience. And it feels right for this double episode to fall over the new year. The second part of it will drop on our Patreon feed on New Year's Day. Because, to be frank, 2024 is going to be a really hard year. I don't think it's much of a prediction to say that the war machines will grind on, that anarcho-capitalism and right-wing extremism will gather speed, and U.S. electoral chaos will spread like the wildfire smoke of climate disaster, and the hot takes will flood the zone as Twitter circles the drain. And we'll continue to follow and analyze the zombie of paranoid spirituality as it lurches forward. We'll be debunking scams, decoding charismatics, and tracking the commodification of our bodily and religious anxieties. We'll document the strengthening alliances between New Age apocalypticism and Christian nationalism. We'll continue to hold up a mirror. And, of course, the hope is, in holding up a mirror, that the culture sees itself more clearly and course-corrects. But from where I stand... I'm not sure that the stark reflection is enough these days. More and more, it seems to me that sustaining helpful journalism from both production and consumption sides might mean adding depth to the mirror function, adding some warm light. If you're going to foreground the bad actors du jour, it's good to make sure the less visible but more numerous good actors can also be seen in the background. If you're going to highlight terrible ideas, don't let them drown out the good ideas. So I can't think of a better way to start off my year than by talking with someone who does exactly that, because Brad is an excellent diagnostician when it comes to the violence of religious extremism, but he's also a bit of a doctor when it comes to the healing potential of spiritual instincts. So Here's our discussion of his term, secular person of faith, which is his attempt to find a good place to stand after leaving religion, but also after leaving disenchantment. Thank you for joining me, Brad. It's so great to have you back. It's so great to be here. I'm not going to lie. The first time I came, my hope and prayer uh, in a secular way, was that we would get to hang out again somehow. And I'm was so grateful for your invitation. I am traveling unexpectedly for the holidays, and my technology and microphones are 
not what they should be. So I want to apologize to you and to your audience for that uh, bit of what's happening today. Well, well, that's fine. And I think we can imagine that you're uh, speaking from maybe out of the past, maybe uh, from a less disenchanted time. <laughs> uh, this is a brief episode called Secular Person of Faith. And that's your phrase. We're making t-shirts and mugs for the holiday season, but we're also going to dig into what that actually means. And I wanted to ask you about it because you first uttered the phrase back on our episode 167, where after we spent this time tracking your path through evangelical Christianity and then to academia, and now to your work on straight white American Jesus, we asked you after all of this, how do you identify and where do you stand? And you said, I'm a secular person of faith. And that, I can't really describe it any other way, but to say that it it rang some kind of deep bell in my brain. So I wanted to get your 101 definition on that just to start. I think for me, identifying as a secular person of faith is, is trying to express a few things. One is that, hey, I am secular. Uh, I, don't, I don't participate formally in a religious tradition, and uh, I'm not somebody who uh, takes on that identity as a Christian, as a Buddhist, as uh, even somebody who would say that they're heavily invested in spiritual practices. I know some people listening will say, well, I'm not, I'm not a part of a religious tradition either, but I'm very spiritual. And that's, that's wonderful. Uh, I, I don't even actually usually describe myself in that way, uh, even if many people would. However, what I found, and I, I mentioned this last time we spoke, is that after I left evangelicalism, I found in many forms of atheism and non-religion uh, fundamentalisms that reminded me of evangelicalism. Right. And they didn't resonate with how I understood myself and the world. And just briefly, I'll say it's because for me, even though I'm secular, the world remains mysterious and it remains uncertain and it remains unpredictable. There's a level of unknowing that is always, in my mind, built into the human condition. And so to be a human being means to have faith. And I think we can talk about faith more elaborately in a second and what that means. But that meant that I came to see myself as a secular person of faith. So I think in terms of my kind of identity, it really fit. And then politically, I think it's important because it says, hey, secular people are also people of faith. And all the privileges, all the ways that we sort of look up to and revere the the reverend or the minister or the vicar in the public square as a respectable source of authority and and uh, moral insight. Well, you know, secular folks are, are trying really hard to live lives of meaning and uh, purpose and moral clarity, just like they are. And so they should also, at times, be sort of seen as those voices and those, those uh, sources. Maybe we should unpack the term faith then, and especially to disambiguate it from belief, let's say. I think faith is an imperfect word. Uh, the religious studies scholar in me is very aware that when we say person of faith, we're actually using Protestant terms. We're using terms that come right out of a kind of Martin Luther framework of what Christianity is. So it's imperfect. Uh, I can already hear my colleagues raising their hands at, at the seminar talk being like, well, yeah, you know, I'm not sure about that word, Onishi. And that's completely fair. Right. The reason I use it is because faith, I think, signals, and you, you actually caught onto this right away last time we spoke, it signals humility. It signals generosity. It signals a demand to say, I don't know everything in this context. There's probably no chance that I ever will. There's even a chance that humans will never know all there is to know, whether it comes to uh, quantum mechanics, whether it comes to the uncertainty principle and the ways that that builds in 
unpredictability and unknowability into our universe. So it means that I'm a person who recognizes that there is a gap between what I know and therefore what I believe and what might be true or real or actual. And that means that I have a certain kind of attitude or comportment to how I think about my condition in the world. And I think that's really important. So even though it's an it's an imperfect term, I think it's a term that can be used very effectively. I think there can be something about the gap that you're describing that can feel either perilous or generative. Uh, it's both. Uh, so there's a great book out there I'll recommend to everyone. It's called Strange Wonder by Mary Jane Rubenstein. And Mary Jane does a great job in that book of explaining how wonder is this, is this word we usually use positively. You might see it on candles being sold to you or at a, to get you to attend a retreat. Wonder, right? Don't we all want to fall back into wonder? Right. And Mary Jane reminds us that uh, Plato is the person who gave us the, the phrase that, you know, philosophy begins in wonder. What I think is, is really important to remember about faith, but about wonder as well, and I think these two go together, is that they mean we are vulnerable perpetually. And that's so hard. It's so hard to be a human being. Let's just say it. It's just so hard to be a human being because we are aware of ourselves. We're aware of the fact that we're going to die. We're aware of others. And so we are vulnerable. So it feels perilous at times to be right this, this creature who lives in that state. But I also think it's generative because this is exactly the beauty and promise of being a human is the fact that we are aware of ourselves acutely, aware of our death acutely, aware of others acutely. And that means we don't just shove food in our mouth. We break bread. We don't just eat and mate and sleep. That we write, we sing, we create art. There's a generativity to being human that comes right from the uncertainty. And so to me, it's the promise and peril. And they're always together. And it's hard. It's not easy. It's no shortcut. But uh, it's, it's everything that's uh, meaningful about living this, this strange and at times awful condition of being a human. I think I'm asking you about secular person of faith because it seems to be of real relevance to the project of sifting conspiratorial and reactionary thinking out of spiritual discourse and culture, because it depends on a kind of reverence for uncertainty, for patience, and for process. Because I think like an ideology of salvation or of certainty, a conspiracy theory offers kind of epistemological and emotional shortcuts. But I think what you're describing in terms of secular faith just refuses to do that. Is that fair? This is the, the exact place where I see a difference between secular person of faith and conspir conspiratorial thinking is I, I think you hit it right on the head, which is that one of them tries to take shortcuts to meaning and to answers. One of them wants to know and to know uh, in ways that feel gratifying and feel like they, they, they take you away from the peril or they at least explain the peril. If I have a conspiracy theory about the way things are, then I still might feel like I'm in danger but I have this like explanation and I'm, and I'm in this community of people who knows it and we're kind of exclusive and we're the only ones that really know. And that makes me feel better at night because I've explained the hurt. I've explained the injustice. It's, it's rationalized through an irrational kind of theory. Okay. 
for me, being a secular person of faith means never taking a shortcut. And, you know, if you know me, uh, and this is <laughs> not always a good thing, uh, I, I just, I, I never take the shortcut. Like, I want to look it all in the face and say, what's at stake here? And to be a secular person of faith means a lot of hard work. It means actually taking stock of the peril you just spoke of, the vulnerability, but also the promise. And uh, it's it's really difficult, but I think it's also really rewarding. And this is where, just to go back to our previous conversation, leaving evangelicalism meant for me becoming a person of faith for the first time, because there's so many spiritual and religious traditions that are based on certainty rather than on faith or humility or unknowing or not knowing. And therefore, when you're in those traditions, the world might call you a person of faith because you identify as Catholic, but in my mind, you're the exact opposite because you have a framework, a worldview that is certain at every point, and therefore it, none of that is needed. And you had a kind of remark or a response to, you know, fellow uh, believers uh, who would note your departure and say, have you lost your faith? And you said something like, well, actually, um, may, maybe you have, or maybe you've never had it, or I'll be, <laughs> I'll be thinking about you. Uh, how did that go again? It was a joke. There was, a, there was something funny about it. This really brings us into the kind of social and political dimensions of these categories. Because again, and this is especially true in the United States, I recognize it's, there are, there are nuances here in terms of how it works in Canada and other places. But in the United States, the person of faith in the public square, especially the Christian, is often given the benefit of the doubt and, and often even more than that looked to as the kind of, you're the good one. You're the trustworthy one. You're the moral one because you're the person of faith. So my tactic with folks who want to converse with me about this is say, look, here's the problem for you is I've spent the last 20, 25 years of my life studying your religious tradition and any others I could find and learn from. I have read your Bible in Greek. I can quote to you, the, if you want, the Book of Romans or Meister Eckhart or Thomas Aquinas. Do you want to talk about Martin Luther or John Calvin, Teresa of Avila, Origin of Alexandria, uh, Tertullian, whoever it may be? Let's, I, I would love to do that because that's what I do in my spare time. I do that because I am a person of faith who's deeply interested in trying to understand, and that means actually learning from religious people. I think the problem for you is you've accepted a worldview with no shadows. You've accepted a worldview with no gray area. You're a person of certainty. And so I'll be thinking of you because that clearly means you're very far from God. I know that because I read Augustine and he taught me that. So it, it means you're very far from God. And therefore, I'm going to pray for you because it seems as if you really need it. <laughs> I mean, it's also a worldview that suggests that all of the writers that you just cited are somehow in agreement with each other. And that's the beauty of it, right? Is like, to me, when I read those folks, at, when I read folks from the Jewish tradition, when I read folks from other spiritual traditions, what you realize about the word tradition is that tradition means argument. It means folks trying to come to some sense of what's important to them as a group. Tradition is not adopting something in a mechanical, robotic way, but Certain religious uh, worldviews, certain religious traditions, practices would have you say either you're with us in every way without questioning or get out. And to me, that's, again, the opposite of faith as I'm discussing it today. Now, you've also said that in the development of this 
you've been very influenced by Jeffrey Kosky, who's a religious studies professor who studies art and aesthetics. And he's got a book that I've made my way through uh, partially called Arts of Wonder, Enchanting Secularity, Walter de Maria, Diller and Scofidio, James Terrell, and Andy Goldsworthy. And he writes about his disenchantment with modern disenchantment. So what kind of disenchantment is Kosky getting at and why, in his view or yours, is this not really working? So this takes us back to a uh, sociologist of religion named Max Weber. And folks listening may, may know their Max Weber, right? They may not, but Max Weber, highly, highly, highly influential, maybe the most influential sociologist of religion in, in the history of the discipline. But Max Weber has this very famous line that students of religion will, will get in a lot of their introductory classes, which is, uh, the world has become disenchanted, that the old gods have faded, and that we now live in a world of rationalization, of intellectualization. That uh, if you are somebody who engages in superstition, magic, uh, dare I say, mysticism, then you are a pre-modern person. Then you refuse to live in the world that is one of science, of data, of evidence. And he draws in my mind, and there's some people who disagree with me, a stark binary between the modern person who is rational and who is disenchanted and the pre-modern religious person who refuses to come into the, uh, the new era. And so disenchantment for Weber is he's German and the, the German word is ent Zauberung. So ent, E-N-T, and then Zauber. So Zauber is magic, right? And ent is like negation, D. So it's the demagicking of the world is disenchantment. And he's basically saying, there's modern people like me who believe in science and data and, and evidence. And then there's everyone else. And he, he even at the end of his, his, uh, his essay, uh, Science as a Vocation, sort of taunts religious people. And he's like, look, or, or, and he, he taunts everyone who he thinks is kind of wavering, thinks that they can be on both sides. He's like, if you can't deal with the stark reality of the scientific worldview, the churches are open. Go ahead and go back. Loser. You weakling, go ahead. <laughs> you, 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 you can't deal with being a scientist and a scientific person, then get, go ahead. You're like, you're not worth it. Go back and pray and whatever you want to do over there. The reason I think Kosky says he's disenchanted with disenchantment is because I think he's saying, I'm a secular person. I, and you know, I, I know Jeff, I've read Jeff's book a hundred times. We've talked about this over the dinner table. I'm not a religious person. And I'm not even, to, and this is, I think, where Jeff and I, are in agreement. We're not even overly spiritual people. I'm not somebody who's drawn to, to spirituality in a kind of natural way. But I, I don't think, and this is the key, I don't think the demagicking of the world equates to the demystification of the world. That I may not believe in magic in a, in a way that is coded negatively. I may not believe in things that are not part of a scientific worldview based on evidence or data or experimentation. But that does not mean that there's no mystery in the world. That doesn't mean that in a quantum world, in a world that uh, is post-Einstein, right, post-Newton, that we are not living in a, in, a, in a universe beset by uncertainty and unpredictability and unknowability. So if I'm disenchanted with disenchantment, it means I'm saying to Max Weber, I may follow you in some limited sense as somebody who thinks that he's adopting what might be called a scientific worldview. But I'm not going to follow you into saying that that means that there's no more mystery 
and therefore no more uncertainty or unpredictability in our world. And so when, when we draw the little chart on the board in my class, and on one side we have religion, and on the other side we have secular, my class usually says, yeah, religious people usually believe in mystery, uncertainty, unpredictability. How about secular people? Certainty, scientific data, ex- experimental results. And what I say is to be disenchanted with disenchantment is to mess up that chart. It's to mess up that binary. And it's to say that even though I follow Weber into the, the scientific aspect of his worldview, I'm not going to follow him into the uh, dis- demystification of his worldview. And that leads to one more conclusion that I'll just mention real quick, which is that opens up pathways for me to have dialogue with my religious colleagues in ways that I can say, you know, I don't believe in what you're talking about in terms of the God you worship or the, uh, the things you believe in the afterlife. But you also have a universe beset by unpredictability and unknowability. You also see that. So I wonder if there aren't ways I might learn from you in an analogous way and that my worldview may be resonant with yours, even if they'll never line up, even if the goal is not to convert one to the other, even if the one is not to make one into uh, A into B or B into A. And so it opens up instead of an adversarial relationship with religious people, it opens up a dialogical one of mutual respect and learning. It would also seem to let the attempt at a literalist conversation go and so that you could appreciate each other's metaphors. One of the ways that I'll, I'll talk about this is my former PhD advisor, Tom Carlson, calls it the apophatic analogy. And apophatic is a way to talk about mystery or unknowing, right? And it's usually used to talk about mystics of the 13th century, right? So the apophatic analogy means that as a secular person, there are parts of my world that are beset by uncertainty, unknowability. How do I react to that? You know that peril you talked about a couple minutes ago? How do I react as a person in the world trying to like raise kids, pay the mortgage, plan for retirement, worry about my neighbors, worry about climate change, pursue justice? And there's, uncer- there's no easy answers. There's no straightforward, just I solved it. How do I react? What do I practice in those moments? What are the ways of resilience? What are the ways of persistence? What are the ways of, of building community? I've got to find those. And I guess one of the answers I would say is, is there analogous practices with my religious neighbors? And if there are, maybe we can learn from each other. I am, And I know there's people listening that are getting tense. They're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and I totally understand it. And I'm not telling you, you have to do anything. All I'm saying is, is this might open up different political possibilities in terms of coalitions. It might open up different ways that we can understand each other as human beings and, and, and think about facing the, the difficulty of being human together, even if we will never agree on what might come to ultimate questions. Well, I'll tell you about a recent kind of revelation that I've had, which is that uh, I didn't realize that there is a category of evangelical Christian that identifies as progressive. And now, they may uh, be anti-abortion. They may have, uh, you know, what I would consider to be conservative or anti-feminist views on, you know, reproductive rights. But they will also say that Christian nationalism is a heresy. They will also say that, you know, if if you think that overturning Roe was actually moral and it 
instead of uh, actually persuading the public about the good news that we have to offer, then you're sorely mistaken. And so when I think about coalition building, I think about, oh, the, the, the values that I have in pushing back against reactionary Christo-fascism and authoritarian rule, they're actually being expressed in a place that I didn't expect them to be expressed in. They are there. And and it is fascinating. There's a a new book called by Isaac Sharp called The Other Evangelicals. If people want to read this book, it it, kind of goes into depth of what you're talking about. Uh, Unfortunately, what happens so often now with those those types of uh, evangelicals you're discussing is they are shown the door. Yeah. Because the, the, the communities have become so reactionary and militant when it comes to their politics, that it almost makes those people uh, religiously homeless because they don't identify as an Episcopalian or some other form of Christian. And yet their churches are like, you can't hold these views and stay. So you decide. And so it's one of the ways that these things work, where if you're going to have a worldview of certainty, you're going to kick anyone out with any sense of wonder or uncertainty and say, please don't bring that around here. It's dangerous. Just back to Weber for a moment, and uh, and by the way, uh, he's having uh, quite a year because I think Riz is one of the <laughs> words of the year, right? Uh, but he, um, I think a, a contemporary lack of understanding about the antipathy that is proposed between modern and pre-modern selves allows for certain conspirituality influencers to flourish. Because uh, what a lot of them do is they say, I am a trained doctor. I know about the microbiome. I know that germ theory isn't quite, you know, what it's all cracked up to be. Uh, And then in their public lives, they basically act as evangelical ministers. They they exist in this double space of assumed rationality, but also prophetic certainty. And, And they do both at the same time. And that's extremely compelling. And I think that's because it's tugging on some conflict within the culture uh, that hasn't been clarified. This is so astute. I think you're so right. And I think that uh, what, here's what I see happening in the, in the case you just laid out is somebody saying, I've been trained in the, in the ways of modernity, in science, in Western medicine. Uh, I'm a biologist. I'm a physicist. I'm fill in the blank. And because I have that authority, you can trust me when I say modernity doesn't have the answers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and so if you want to be healed, we got to go to the pre-modern. We need to go back to the ancient. If you want to be pure, if you want to feel whole, if you want yourself to match up with your authentic big S self, you got to get on the ride with me to go to the ancient wisdom that I have, because I can tell you, I have studied, I know for a fact as a fill in the blank doctor, as a fill in the blank scientist, this stuff doesn't work, right? So they're, they're claiming the modern authority and then telling you, this is why you shouldn't trust it. You should trust me. And that's the evangelical minister part, right? So, yeah. I guess they are monetizing a particular kind of disillusionment and they are, but they're replacing it uh, with something usually invented um, rather than practiced in community. I mean, often the, the influencers that we study are sort of appropriating kind of reconstructed traditions from other places. Uh, so, yeah, very strange, very strange activity. There's a, a disenchantment with disenchantment. So I think, I think the people you're describing who are susceptible to these influencers, they're also disenchanted with disenchantment. But I think when you get there, 
it's a, it's that's the cross, the, the fork in the road. It's, are you going to choose a shortcut that promises you, if you do this cleanse, if you do this fast, if you pay me this much money and you take my advice, I will heal you. I will literally solve you. Or are you going to enter into a path that's like, it's going to be a lot of hard work and, and self-reflection, a lot of learning. There's going to be moments of healing and relief and alleviation. There's going to be moments of just making your way through because it's a Wednesday. And this is just not uh, not easy, but that's life. And we're going to do it that way. You, you see what I mean? Like, it's a lot easier to sell the first one. Like, I'm thinking about Christiane Northrup, who after, you know, 40 years of looking at lab reports and studying, you know, new medications and um, doing all of the, the the desk work and the administrative work of, you know, gynecological medicine. She always had some new age ideas. But I can imagine that for some people, it just starts to feel cold and empty. They don't see the sort of in the, in the they don't see the long arc of history that somehow all of that lab, lab work is going to pay off. And so they, they want something else, something magical to happen. So I wonder if that's a factor too. I, I do. And I think that, uh, so I think we've talked about disenchantment. So here we are, we're people, we get disenchanted with disenchantment. We look at Weber and his like, he gets up in the morning, eats the same breakfast every day, goes into the lab, wears the same dockers. He has 16 pairs of the same dockers, uh, 17 Oxford shirts that he buttons up every morning, uh, 18 uh, navy blue ties. And there he is. He's in the lab. He comes home at 7 p.m. and he eats his dinner and he goes to bed. And that, you know, that's it, right? And you're like, I don't know that I want to live in the what he called the iron cage of rationality. That This does not seem like where I want to be. It hurts. I have trauma. I have pain. This is not fulfilling. So I want to re-enchant the world. How do I re-enchant the world? And I think one of the options is through the kinds of spirituality, conspiratorial spiritual leaders that you're that you're so uh you know good at covering and discussing and analyzing because those folks are going to say i'm going to re-enchant your world with magic with uh the divine with something that will feel ancient and revelatory and all of a sudden you're like i want that that sounds really great and i guess for me to be a secular person of faith means the world is enchanted but it, the enchantment doesn't necessarily mean something that will provide a shortcut to mythical wholeness. It means there is mystery, uncertainty, unpredictability, and unknowability. There is a charm to the universe and to the human condition that is there. And we can miss it because we're looking for that one thing that will solve the puzzle rather than the joy of breaking bread with a friend rather than the joy of sitting on a park bench in Toronto, in New York City, with someone you haven't seen for a year, and catching up for two hours, and not having to human alone for that period of time, and feeling a sense of understanding and compassion and love. The feeling of simply taking a walk and being overwhelmed by a sunset or by the call of birds, those things are full of wonder and enchantment. But it's so much easier to say, I want to take these supplements, do that yoga, and learn the teachings of this person. And hopefully in a year, I will be fully healed and have no worries ever again. One last thing that I think feeds into or may have been formative uh, as you came into secular person of faith discourse, which is 
this also blew my mind. Uh, I did not know that Christian and Catholic atheism was a thing. And when I found out recently, I had a, another jolt of recognition. Then by email, you said, oh, oh yeah, this was a, a study field for me early on. And so I've started reading Thomas Altizer's The Gospel of Christian Atheism. And there are two ideas that stood out in the first couple of pages, dozen pages or so. So here are the two ideas. I'll I'll summarize them and maybe you can respond to them because I think uh, he might be pointing to a number of the things that we're talking about. So firstly, he says, on a theological and also a mythic level, the death of Christ initiates the death of theism. It's a sign that the old God has entered into material life and will never leave and is now to be found in the faces of everyone. And that's part of the story of Christianity. Thomas Altizer, first of all, is amazing. Uh, you know, if, if you remember the, the God is Dead Time magazine cover of the 60s, uh, Thomas Altizer, somebody's going to get asked about that during that time period because he's writing Death of God books. I mean, he's writing about the death of God at Harvard and all these other places. Tom Altizer is also an amazing human being. He's, he's passed away a couple of years ago. If you met him, he had the loudest voice I've ever heard. And anytime you went to a restaurant with him, you would almost get kicked out. You'd almost get kicked out because he'd be yelling about like the imminence of God in the, in, in the dirt, in the body. And you'd be, you know, and someone would be like, this is an Applebee's. You guys need to leave. Um, so he's an amazing guy. He's an amazing guy. I have so many Tom Altizer stories. But the thing that you just mentioned is so interesting because he's basically saying the death of Christ is in some ways the death of Christianity and theism as you know it. And we should look for the divine in the imminent. It's a, it's a, it's a theology of radical imminence. God is in the dirt. God is in the, the tissue. God is in the everyday. God is in the, the, the subway ride to work when you're dead tired. God is in the, the moments when you put some effort into making dinner for your family on a Thursday night when you're all exhausted, but it's important to sit around the table and discuss. God is in the tissue of the suffering, in the faces of anguish of the people. And what that does, whether you know it, it holds together for, for folks as a coherent worldview, is that it, it refocuses us and says, there's a sense of the divine as ordinary. There's a sense that the extraordinary, the incalculable is often in the places we're so unwilling to look that we'd rather go chasing that influencer who's promising me wholeness rather than to uh, see what is in the, the imminent everyday quotidian moments of being human, which may sound like a bad folk song or something, but I think, I think it is a good, I think Altizer is really good at reminding us all this. Okay. Now, number two is he seems to suggest that on the level of intellectual history, the 19th century disenchantments of evolutionary theory and materialist philosophy are part of the Christian story, not rejections of it. And theologians who have bent over backwards for two centuries, holding their finger in the dike, are actually acting in bad faith by trying to keep things in order. And their task should now be to absorb disenchantment into their understanding of spirituality. This is really fascinating line of thinking. So Altizer's writing this in the, the 60, late 60s. He's, he's writing in the early 70s. That's really when he's really famous. And at the very same time, there are sociologists of religion like Peter Berger and Thomas Luckmann and others who are basically saying from a sociological, sociological perspective the same thing, that Christianity in many ways is a, a large actor in the story of industrialization. 
in the story of modern scientific worldview and its development through Darwin and through so many others. And in many ways, this means that Christianity has sort of signed its its own uh, death by way of uh, leading us to this moment of rationalization and intellectualization. And so someone like Altizer, a theologian, is going to come along and say, that means that the death of Christ is not the end of Christianity. It just means that if you are a person of faith, you have to be open to a radical Christianity where God is dead. And therefore, God can live again. That's the resurrection story, right? And so he's trying to use this Christian imagery to cohere what he takes to be a kind of modern uh, scientific moment and uh, a Christian story that has the symbols and the myths to, to really give meaning to it uh, in a way that uh, makes sense theologically and historically. So not everyone buys it, not everyone's interested in it, but it is a very fascinating uh, sort of pathway of, of thinking about religion in the 20th and 21st centuries. Well, I can tell you, as a lapsed Catholic, it gives new meaning to this is my body, which will be given up for you, and the breaking of the bread on the altar, and the dissolution of that bread into the bodies of the people who are gathered there. It's like, it. Be, it be, oh, this is me, and it became you. On the Catholic front, there's this whole lineage of Catholicism that really takes a cue from Altizer and says, God is dead means we need to stop trying to conceptualize God. That if you try to, if you try to put God into human language, if you try to put God into human concepts, you're creating a projection of God rather than allowing the God to be whom God is, right? I spent years living in France. I actually lived in a Catholic monastery at one point, even though I was a secular person, because I was studying with these French philosophers who were basically saying, God is dead, and that's why God is alive. God is dead, and that's why I refuse to encapsulate God in these sort of human linguistic cages. And so uh, there was a post-metaphysical understanding of God coming after Altizer. And so anyway, the, it, it does give brand new meaning to this is my body. Uh, and, and the whole sense of uh, sacrament, the whole sense of communion, the whole sense of flesh, the whole sense of embodiment. So there have been many sort of Catholic uh, folks who've who've really gone the ways that you're suggesting and and really thought them through and and tried to make sense of them from their own perspective. Bradley, uh, we're going to leave it there, but I have two stories to tell you that I want you to respond to, and we're going to put that onto Patreon. But before you go, first of all, thank you so much. Uh, I think that the way you speak about uh, this intersection between secularity and faith and enchantment and disenchantment is like pretty crucial to the psychology that we examine here. So thank you for that. And you have a huge media project that I think is revving up this year. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I founded uh, Axis Mundi Media, which is a, a podcast network. We create content that tries to connect the ivory tower to the grassroots. And we really have in mind safeguarding democracy in the public square from extremisms, from religious nationalisms from authoritarianism, things that uh, you all here at Conspirituality are doing uh, in ways that are very resonant with ours. So check out accessmundi.us and you can find all the things we're producing. We have a new show out that, that traces the history of evangelical purity culture to its white supremacist origins, for example, uh, and much more. And just also want to say thank you, Matthew, for inviting me again and, and want to apologize one more time for uh, kind of being unexpectedly on the go here. And that means that my technology and my microphones and other things are not what they should be. So if you've made it this far listening, I really appreciate you uh, in the audience. Thank you. Thank you, Bradley. 
With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.